Hey you there, welcome back to the podcast. This would be our third episode, I believe, on the colony of Acadia, which of course is contained within our larger story on all of New France. And in our last episode, we saw the colony of Acadia split into two, one half run by the Jesuits and the other half run by the Poutrincourt family. Both factions hating one another, and ultimately in 1613, Samuel Argyll, by orders of the governor of Virginia, sails north and takes them both out. In 1614, Poutrincourt himself comes to investigate the state of the colony, and he finds living among the Mi'kmaq people, his son Bayancourt, and their cousins, the Latours, along with a couple dozen regular French folks whose name do not come down to us, because regular folks like us, our names were often not recorded. Poutrincourt wants to depopulate the entire colony, bring the French back home to lick their wounds. However, Bayancourt and the Latours, they want to stay. They have actually begun to integrate into the Mi'kmaq people, and at some point, they will be adopted by them. And so the bewildered Poutrincourt uh, leaves his son and everybody else there and sails back home. Everything the French had built up to this point had been burned to the ground the year before by Samuel Argyll. And Samuel Argyll himself will be busy in a couple years kidnapping Pocahontas, so he remains in American history quite a bit, and he often plays the role of a villain. But he's, he's a very skilled and very successful man at what he does. Bayancourt spends the rest of the 16-teens with Charles Latour as his lieutenant, slowly rebuilding Acadia, Port Royal particularly, but also new trading posts up and down the riverways in Fort Lamoron. And the trade started to pick up. So in other words, Bayancourt had a successful fur trading operation uh, sometime by the mid-16-teens. But this would be temporary. By 1618 or so, everything starts to fall apart again. Business just isn't good. Historians have underplayed the amount of help the Mi'kmaq people paid to the French during this time period, and how likely it is that every single Frenchman in Acadia at this time had been adopted by the Mi'kmaq tribe. But if we jump ahead 100 years or so, let's say, the English authorities in the area would note that the natives and the French are essentially the same people. They're two ends of the same people, in other words. There was a spectrum And the English had a hard time navigating who was what, who was where, who had allegiance to whom. And it starts right here. But this is a shadowy, underrecorded period. If we jump all the way ahead to either 1623 or 1624, we don't exactly know. It's recorded that Bayancourt dies in the care of the natives. By this point, Acadia had been fully absorbed by the natives in the area. The French being an auxiliary or an appendix upon the existing Mi'kmaq tribe. Now, all the paper titles to Acadia that Bynkor held, which were sold to him by his father, who would that go to? Where does that go at this point, considering that Acadia has simply dissolved away and is just part of the native landscape now? Well, Poutrincourt, his father, is dead. He died in one of the many French civil wars. Bynkor, of course, bequeaths everything onto his lieutenant and his cousin, Charles de la Tour. But there's a lot of doubt in this. In fact, there are rumors that Bynkor was poisoned. And then there was a lot of workings going on behind the scenes among his cousins that seemed to suggest that plans were in the works that required Bynkor disappear. Let's jump over the pond for a little bit. So in the time period 1620-1621, right in there, William Alexander, the Earl of Stirling in Scotland, received a grant for what the French considered Acadia and what the English considered the northern portion of Ferdinando Gorge's New England. And this grant of land 
the Earl of Stirling called Nova Scotia. Heard of it? I bet you have. Nova Scotia is the Latin term for New Scotland. And of course, north of New England, you would have New Scotland. Now, this isn't out of the ordinary. The different colonial powers claimed over overlapping sections of land, and they both gave them different names. That happens all the time. We've heard about this several times. Now, King James I forced this purchase on the Council for New England, run by Ferdinando Gorgias, who seemingly did not want to sell that top portion of their environ to this Scottish earl. And a good chunk of that border that was created 400 years ago between Nova Scotia and New England forms the border today between New Brunswick and Maine. In other words, the United States and Canada. So this had some very long-lasting ramifications. Anyway, right around the same exact time, Charles Latour's father, Claude Latour, happened to be in Scotland. And no one is exactly sure why. The Latours, of course, were Huguenots, meaning French Protestants. And often, in the last hundred years of history, up to this point, 1620, 1621, a French Protestant's allegiance might switch over from the nation of France to a Protestant nation. Perhaps your religious beliefs would trump your perceived nationality or ethnicity, especially if your home country was uh, pushing you out through persecution. And so it was pretty normal for Huguenots to show up in nations like England and the Netherlands. And after a couple generations, they were just like everybody else. Now imagine Charles Latour participating in the Acadia colony run by the French. We see by the end of the 1610s, it's slowly dissolving. Everyone is, is essentially going native. The furs aren't coming in anymore. You end up in Scotland, and you convince this earl to seek a grant from the only other power that has claim over this area of Acadia, which would be England. Once the Earl of Stirling has his grant, and your son is set to inherit all of Biancourt's uh, rights and privileges, Biancourt dies in his mid-30s under unrecorded circumstances. Suddenly, your son has all of the French titles, and you have the ear of the guy who has all the rights and privileges granted to him by the Scottish and English monarch. It seems like a tidy way to wrap everything up. But that that's as conspiratorial as I will get in this podcast. But if you pay attention to the motivations and the switching allegiances of the Latours moving forward, it starts to paint a picture of these personalities. So that's the last I'll mention of it until the next time I mention it. Anyway, Latour inherited Fort Lamoron, which he Im- immediately renames Fort Latour. He's going to name it after himself. Now, the actual French population in Acadia at this time, under his control, might have been as few as 15 to 20 guys. These men mostly marry native Mi'kmaq women, including Charles Latour, who now fancied himself the legal owner of Acadia from the French point of view, and is now integrated inside of the Mi'kmaq tribe, who occupies much of the territory that the French would consider Acadia. The Mi'kmaq at this point, of course, would consider Latour to be now an adopted member of their tribe. So all the loose ends are tied up for him, except that the Empire of France itself did not recognize Biancourt's titles. How could they? They barely took any notice of Acadia in 1623. We often think of France today as a powerful and proud but mid-sized nation in terms of population. But 400 years ago, they were considered very large. And to even take notice of 20 guys out in the woods on another continent uh, would be unlikely. Now, this sounds like a victorious moment for Latour, but you have that issue on the one side. And then on the American coast, 1623, he gets all these rights and privileges, 1624. Let the years start to compile a little bit. What's going on just a little bit further south from Acadia into what 
we would consider New England. Well, 1620, we see the Separatists of Leiden, who you probably know as the Pilgrims land, right? Well, by the mid-1620s, the Pilgrims and other English, because there were other English men on the coast, and we'll learn about that next season, they started to creep up to the good fishing waters and the good trading riverways of Acadia. And so by 1626, under pressure from the English traders, Latour had to abandon Fort Pentago. And by 1628, the Plymouth Pilgrims had occupied the fort and were running all the fur trade in and around it. This time period, the lines would truly be blurred between what is French North America and what is English North America. This would be a preview to all the many, many conflicts that would go on for 135, 140 years after this point in time. And if you listen to our podcast episodes on Champlain, you would know right around this year, 1626, right into 1627, we're going to see the beginning of the Anglo-French War. One of many Anglo-French wars, but this would be the one that would be happening in this time period. Sir William Alexander, the Earl of Stirling, now wanting to capitalize on his new Nova Scotia, New Scotland, a.k.a. Acadia, partners with a English outfit that had competing interests. So they decided to join forces, and it was the Kirk family, or Kirk family, who were half French, half English, but had their loyalties in England. They were Protestants. The Kirk brothers were the same exact guys who eventually took out Champlain. Well, during the same time period, they're looking to take over Acadia. And in 1627, the two groups finance four ships, 70 colonists, and they're going to people Acadia with Englishmen. The one brother, David Kirk, he actually leads this expedition, he settles the Englishmen, and then he starts deporting Frenchmen wherever he can find them. Charles Latour wasn't going to give up so easily. Remember, he's been here now almost two decades. He's integrated with the natives. He might be more native than French at this point. Who knows? He gathers the meager French population around Port Royal. He establishes a militia. He builds a stockade. He digs in. The French are here to stay. Oh, but the Kirk brothers, they have wonderful timing. They intercepted the entire convoy of colonists and supplies that were going to be heading to Samuel de Champlain in the St. Lawrence. Well, they also intercepted any ship that was headed towards Acadia or away from Acadia. One of these ships included a relief effort headed by Claude de la Tour, Charles's father. So the Kirk brothers in 1628 have Latour's father and all of his intended supplies. They take him back to England as a prisoner. Well, of course, he falls in love with an English woman, a member of nobility nonetheless. And of course, Cloud, as every man will, switches allegiances and becomes an English subject. And not without reward. The Earl of Stirling makes Cloud and his son Charles baronets of Nova Scotia. At this point, this means that the Latours have a claim over the area of Acadia from both the English under the term Nova Scotia and under the French under the term Acadia. They have competing titles, both to their own benefit. In 1630, the French Acadians, of course, still hunkered down and besieged in a fort, are approached by a force led by Claude or Claude Latour, Charles's father. And supposedly, the dad says to Charles, listen, son, we have title here. We have an English title now. We have our French title, but we have our English title. The English are winning this thing. Let's hand everything over to the English. We retain everything. We just have to switch over our flags. And supposedly, Charles Latour refused. And in the ensuing skirmish, the English retreated and they left Claude to his own devices, having failed to persuade the French to come over to their side. Now, historians have noted that this account comes from Latour himself. 
and so is probably unreliable. It's quite likely that since at least 1620, the Latours had been playing France and England off one another. And by 1632, when Acadia is set to be handed back to the French in a peace agreement, it was awfully convenient for the Latours to throw dad under the bus and make son look like a hero, a, a, a patriot of the French people. As it is recorded that Claude received no punishment for his turncoat behavior, other than he simply wasn't allowed in Latour's fort anymore, but could live in a house right next to it. And so let's talk about the end of that war. 1632, and in about around there, we see the end of the Anglo-French War, and we see that New France is going to be given back to the French. We learned about how the St. Lawrence was handed back to Champlain, and actually Cardinal de Richelieu wanted his cousin to take Champlain's job, a guy by the last name of Razali. Champlain's name being prominent enough in his reputation, formidable, Razali refused to take Champlain's job, and instead he accepted a position ruling over Acadia. Now, in the tail end of the war, 1631, the French made Latour lieutenant general and governor of Acadia. But here we are in 1632, and Razali was now named governor of Acadia. Latour was swept under the rug, and the Company of New France made an entire subsidiary company to refound Acadia and build it back up from the destruction the English wrought upon it. And this would be the moment that all of our Acadia episodes have been building up to, because this is when we start to see the immigration of whole French families, not just men pursuing the fur trade or fishing. Now we're seeing the actual population of what would become French Acadians, and even the future Cajuns, not to spoil the story, arrive in the New World. And in the 1630s, we're talking about a couple dozen families. And these families, though, over the next five or six generations, will have record-breaking birth rates and create such a huge population that the English, where they would formally even take notice of the French population in Acadia, mixed in with the Mi'kmaq, would be so concerned about the exploding population of the French in Acadia, they would consider complete depopulation of what they would have called Nova Scotia. And so Razali arrives with the first families. He brings livestock. He brings horses. The unique type of farming that the Acadians were known for, involving a dike system developed during this time, and Razali began to depopulate his Acadia of all the Nova Scotia settlers, the English and the Scottish, which he would relocate not too far away in Maine. And so this has a significant impact on the history of Maine. Of course, he doesn't get everyone. And some of these English and Scottish settlers just fit in nicely with the Acadians. They marry into Acadian families. And just like the Mi'kmaq people, they're part of why the Acadians become something slightly different than French, as we know it, and even different than the uh, Canadian French that we would call the Quebecois. They remain distinct, even to this day, in all their various derivations. Now, if you know your New England history, you'll know that the Massachusetts Bay Company was starting to take hold just north of Plymouth, and they themselves would have an explosion of population as you see the Puritan exodus from England. Now, Razali, he was no pushover. He was known as the Sea Wolf of France. And whereas Acadia had been ignored before by the French Empire, Razali, again, a cousin of Cardinal Richelieu, the real power behind the throne, could command some amount of resources in his direction. One of the first things he did as governor was to write the New England colonies. For instance, he wrote the uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony a letter, sent it right to Governor Winthrop, and in a literary act of aggression, refers to Governor Winthrop as the governor of the English at Boston in Acadia. He was making it very clear that there was no such thing as New England, 
This was all French Acadia. Domestically, he sets up the seat of his government at La Have around modern-day Liverpool, Nova Scotia. It's around the time of the arrival of Razzley that we hear this story of Latour refusing to surrender to the English and his father betraying the French. And now you could see why this story being told to Razzley would be to the benefit of the Latours. And so Charles Latour, even though his position being preempted, is made a lieutenant to Razzley. But Razzley also brought a cousin with him by the last name of D'Aulnay. And D'Aulnay is also made a lieutenant governor of Acadia. And so Razzley did his best to integrate the old with the new. And now to turn to native matters, there was an independent trader in the area, a certain Captain Jean Thomas, who made his money illegally selling booze to the Mi'kmaq people. Latour's government being besieged and weak, it wasn't very hard to carry on a trade, but now Razzley shows up in grand fashion and wants to shut him down. Well, what he does, he rallies certain factions of the Mi'kmaq people into an army. And he leads that army. And he actually goes and attacks Razzley's own fort. Razzley's men forced to escape. But the sea wolf wasn't there at the time. Now, when he shows up, Razzley himself, he retakes the fort, dispatches with that traitor, and establishes for himself a little respect among the Mi'kmaq people. Dione was tasked by Razzley with deporting the Scottish and the English, which again was not completely successful. Latour is tasked with taking out the Plymouth trading posts in what would now be parts of New Brunswick and Maine, which they of course considered parts of Acadia. These would be fairly easy to do because the trading posts only contained at most a dozen guys, and usually they could be done bloodlessly. However, in 1633, one of the posts he tried to take out, he ended up killing two of the five men there, capturing the other three, and he took all their goods. This would create a lot of bad blood with the New England colonies. More to come on that. And so given a couple years to establish himself, by 1635, Razzley and his two lieutenants are forced to be reckoned with. And they're sending a clear message to New England of where their border is. But unfortunately for the French, Razzley dies in 1635. The one set to adopt his governorship of Acadia was actually his brother in France. But his brother didn't want to have anything to do with the operation, and he didn't want to leave France. And so he gave it up to his cousin, the Lieutenant Governor Dionnet. However, Latour argued, based on his previous experience, previous titles, current position, that he should be the leader of Acadia. And so we have two camps, not yet warring, but two separate camps, Latour and Dionnet. This very same year, Dionnet moves quickly to cement his power. He takes out the Plymouth-controlled Fort Pentago and reports his victory to the Company of New France. And then the Company of New France hands over that fort to Charles de la Tour, which, as you can imagine, made Dionnet furious. Not only did he d did nothing to get that fort, but now uh, the Company of New France seems to have been uh, legitimizing Charles de la Tour and his own claims to rule over Acadia. And so with tensions on the rise, Dionnet sets up his government at Port Royal, and Latour found himself centering his government around the fort at St. John, now in the current Canadian province of New Brunswick. There could have been some resolution between these two factions, but there wasn't much help coming from France proper, and if we look to their nearest French neighbors in the St. Lawrence, 1635, December, Samuel de Champlain, who was present for the founding of Acadia itself by the French, had died. Latour would argue that Dionne was the usurper because his family, through a connection of titles that were unbroken, uh, went all the way back to the founding of Acadia. His relatives knew Samuel de Champlain. We have his father Claude, or Claude. Then you have his cousins, 
Bayancourt and Bayancourt's father, Poutrincourt, and a title that goes all the way back through them to Dumont, the employer of Champlain himself. And that Dione was just a Johnny-come-lately with a new shiny title that had no history or connection to the people in Acadia. And then Latour argued on the other end of things that in 1631, he received a title to be governor of Acadia directly from the king of France, whereas Dione merely inherited a title that belonged to Razali. Moving into 1636, the two of them, Dione and Latour, were advised by the king of France himself to occupy separate halves of Acadia. But maps, geography, and ego at the time would keep them from defining exactly what those two halves would be. And so this is the setup to the Acadian Civil War. The uh, most accurate, most used source for this entire saga will be a man who left an account by the name of Nicolas Denis, who operated in Acadia independent of both of these men. And so he's considered to be relatively non-partial in his account. Many historians have noted that by 1636, 37, into 38, Latour was simply waiting out Dionne. He knew that Dionne, a proper Frenchman, would eventually tire of Acadia and return home. Now, just to remind you, Latour lived among the natives, suffered setbacks brought upon them by Samuel Argyll, who completely burned over Acadia and St. Croix and everywhere else that the French had settled up to that point. Latour's plan was to outlast Dionne, and so he didn't need to be violent in his encounters with his counterpart. But moving into the year 1638, Dionne marries a French woman by the name of Jeanne Moulin, very con- from a very connected family that will be very involved in New France in the future. And so Latour's looking at this. He's bringing over the wife. He's bringing over more settlers. He's setting up Port, Port Royal as his own like feudal estate. It became clear to Latour that Dionne was not going anywhere. Furthermore, by the next year, 1639, Latour's native wife dies, leaving him with three young daughters. Latour himself then sends off for a new wife from France, a woman by the name of Francois-Marie Jacqueline, who will prove to be at least as skillful as Latour when dealing with both the English and French authorities. And up to about 1640, there was a peace between the two camps because they were both subsidiaries of this Acadian subsidiary of this new France company that Richelieu had run. So technically, they were all on the same side, same team, but it was like a McDonald's right across the street from another McDonald's. And even even worse than that, because if the owner of the one McDonald's dies, the owner of the other McDonald's has a fair chance of taking it over. And so this uneasy peace was broken in 1640 when Latour came to Port Royal to inspect some of his inventory being ready to be sold back to the company, probably a store of furs. Dionne does not allow him to enter Port Royal, and this leads to a violent clash. The details are murky, but this is what sparks the Acadian Civil War. Dionne takes this incident and a few other little things that were going on, and he returns to France. And by the time he comes back to Acadia in 1641, he has orders from the king to take Latour by force if necessary and deport him back to France. Uh, to rescind all of Latour's titles and to take all of Latour's fortifications and properties and supplies. And so right out of the gate, all of Latour's legal claims to Acadia, gone. Latour is now the rebel. Dionne also brought with him 20 more families, 12 Capuchin friars to convert the natives, creates these large farming estates and charges a very low yearly rent on each settling family and their plot of land. But if you think back to 1613, 1614, 
Charles de Latour has been in worse straits than this. This isn't even that bad. And so Latour refuses to submit to Dionnet. He escapes arrest, and he seeks refuge among the least likely of supporters, the English in New England. Now, there had actually been a lot of trade going on between Maine, Massachusetts, Plymouth, and Acadia, or at least the Acadians, when it was part of Nova Scotia. A lot of this trade was illegal, according to the crowns of the English and the French, but they happened nonetheless. And so Latour actually had quite a few connections now in New England. But even with all these sources of help, Latour is eventually trapped in his little old fort, Fort Saint-Jean. And a naval battle outside of the fort ensues, and Latour loses. Latour and his wife are captured by Dionnet. Now Dionnet stops short of shipping Latour back to France, which was probably a mistake. Instead, he has them sign a agreement of non-aggression and agree to send all of their issues collectively back to France for delegation. What actually happens at this point is that Latour and 140 of his colonists travel to Boston. Meanwhile, his wife goes to France. Now, Francois-Marie is so convincing, so charming, she manages to get the company of New France to not only not recall Latour, uh, to keep everything kind of up in the air, but also provide her with a warship, which she takes back to Acadia. Of course, Dionnet, not accepting any of these terms, refuses to let her ship enter any harbor that he could. And so then she takes her ship and meets her husband in Boston. While they are in Boston, Dionnet is trying to root out all of Latour's men from every nook and cranny, every fort and trading post that Latour has set up. At times, he attacks some of these with great losses. He's also seizing any ships that uh, were coming from New England, suspecting that they were working for Latour. And so even though he thinks he's securing Acadia for himself, he's ruining his name down in New England and only making Latour look like the good guy. And believe you me, Latour was trying his best to convince the people of Boston that he was a genuine Protestant trying to free the new world of the Catholic influence, those Capuchin friars. Now, we know that the Latours were Huguenot, which were French Protestants, at least on paper, but it seems at times they would switch to whatever religion was more convenient, more politically advantageous to them. But it was really his wife. His Latour was always suspect for being a shyster. But the Bostonian authorities took notice of his wife showing up with a warship with 140 French Huguenot soldier sailors on board. While Latour seems to have been spewing rhetoric that the New Englanders easily recognized, his wife was able to spin quite a yarn, depicting Latour as the genuine ruler of Acadia and Dionne the Catholic interloper, a pirate who was seizing their ships. And he was successful. He was able to raise up a mercenary army among the Bostonians, along with a couple ships to accompany their warship. And they approached Fort Saint-Jean, of course, occupied by Dionnet. Now, these men were hired just as intimidation. They were specifically told not to engage with Dionnet's forces. Just show up and be a force of numbers. The Boston authorities thought this was the proper way to meet Latour's ends. Now, when this large force showed up at Saint-Jean, Dionnet fled. He didn't even try to fight this. He began running away with his men. And then Latour actually convinced about 30 Bostonians to help him to capture Dionnet, which was not the plan. Dionnet got away, but the New Englanders were allowed to pillage anything that he had left behind at the fort. Once this was done, the New Englanders were satisfied 
they figured themselves paid and returned to Boston. This would lead for another year where Dionne would punish the New Englanders for their actions by seizing more of their ships and even engaging in privateering outside of the bounds of his perceived Acadia. And so Latour is uh, seemingly back from the dead, but he didn't vanquish his enemy. There's still two sides, and we're right back where we were in about 1640. Dionne is actually successful in negotiating with Massachusetts authorities to stay out of the internal affairs of Acadia. Nonetheless, both sides want to convince uh, the people of New England that they are the legitimate Acadia. As France and England at peace at this time, it would be a wartime act to support a rebel, but it would be a service to the king of France to support the legitimate government. And so both sides tried to gain favor from New Englanders. But after the 1643 attack, especially the authorities in Boston were wary about getting involved at all. And they figured, let them fight it out. It's only going to weaken the French position that they're fighting each other. And so Dionne got this treaty that the New Englanders will stay out of Acadian affairs, at least when it comes to military actions. And Latour got from Massachusetts officials a letter to be sent to Dionne asking for the return of Latour's private property. But nonetheless, recognizing that Dionne was the legitimate governor of Acadia. This left Latour in a weakened state. And so in the year 1645, he again goes back to Boston for the second or third time to elicit support, or at least try to overturn the support that Dionne was receiving. But this is precisely when Dionne strikes. Not waiting for him to return from New England, of course. He knew he had to act quickly. Dionne goes right for Latour's power base, Fort St. Jean, which was being commanded by Latour's wife at the time. She led the garrison and actually uh, beat off Dionne's forces. He was forced to retreat. Very quickly after that first attack, he returns once again. He attacks the fort again, and Latour's wife again has to lead the defense. This time, however, it's bloody. There's lots of deaths on both sides, but finally Dionne manages to take over Latour's fort. Dionne having to expend so much effort and human life to uproot Latour's forces was not feeling very forgiving. He hung every single man in Latour's garrison. Not only did he hang them, but he hung them in front of his wife. She had to watch the entire thing happen with a noose around her own neck. At the very last second, Dionne spared her life, only to imprison her, where one account said, she fell ill with spite and rage. And within three weeks, she died. At this point, Latour was thoroughly defeated. The New England authorities, recognizing Dionne, his wife is dead, his center of power uh, completely occupied, his children probably prisoner of Dionne. Latour, hearing about all of this from Boston, uh, of course, is now receiving no support whatsoever. He's just one guy. He lost. His side is gone. Him and a small group of Frenchmen that he came with, they received passage to Newfoundland on an English ship under the ruse that they would be part of the crew. Well, they lead a mutiny, and they strand the English on a small island. They gather what forces they can, and they attack Fort Saint-Jean. As you can imagine, with as much spit and vinegar as they possibly could have, they expend every last resource, every man they could, until they, too, are forced to retreat. Dionne had won the day, won the year, won Acadia. Latour, in this last attempt, even sullied his name with the Bostonians. It was over for him. Latour licks his wounds, and he moves on to the St. Lawrence. Seemingly at the end of his rope, 
He now reinvents himself, becomes a fur trader and interpreter among the Huron, participates in war party against the Iroquois, the Haudenosaunee Confederation. He even befriends the Jesuits, who consider him a close ally. Latour, through his own wit and skill, received a second life, but everything he had achieved in the last 35 years or so in Acadia was gone. Dionne proved to be uh, the master of the two of them. He even received an agreement from the New England Confederation acknowledging his leadership over Acadia and a, an agreement of mutual friendship. Latour's old fort, Fort Saint-Jean, became Dionne's primary station for trading furs. And the King of France gave him titles extending Acadia all the way down into English Virginia. Of course, that would only exist on paper. So while Latour had more flair, more surprises, Dionne was more calculated and in the end was able to wring out a little support and acceptance and respect from the New Englanders, who at this point, 1640 or so, greatly outnumbered the Acadians. It was all skill. But call it fate, call it the randomness of the universe, call it whatever you want. Dionne, he uh, enjoys a couple years being governor of Acadia, uncontested. But then in May of 1650, Dionne, with a companion, was out in a boat in the cold May waters of Acadia. And the boat began to take on water. The two men rapidly tried to make it back to shore, and they did, before the boat completely uh, sunk below the waters. But shortly thereafter, Dionne dies of hypothermia. Shortly thereafter, all of his employees take their own chunk of Acadia, their own piece of the business. Corruption at an all-time high. Dionne's titles are being held by his widow, and all of his creditors now chose to pounce. Many of these French merchants wanting to seize Acadia for itself. This left his widow Jeanne nearly penniless with eight children to look after. When Latour in the St. Lawrence heard about this, he rushed to France. And he recovered some of his former titles in some form. Was able to scrap together a small force of men in a few boats and sailed for Acadia. Now imagine yourself in his shoes. Your nemesis, the guy who killed many of your friends, all of your subordinates, and may have led to the death of your precious wife is now dead. Now his family is vulnerable, up for the picking, their titles and their lives. What do you think Latour would do? What would you do? Well, at the end of the day, Charles Latour proposed to Jeanne. The two of them came to an understanding that instead of fighting one another, they could combine all their rights and privileges, titles and manpower, keep the English at bay, negotiate with their creditors, and solidify their claim over Acadia. And so now, Dionne, who had a solid win over Charles Latour, all of it, well, first of all, he's dead, and now his widow is marrying Latour. Oof, a quick reversal. Everything that was once his now belongs to Latour. All of Dionne's sons would grow up only to die in wars fighting for France. Three out of four of his daughters would become nuns. But from this point forward, Jeanne and Charles would be rulers of Acadia. Oh, but pump the brakes! 1654, the Anglo-Spanish War, had trickled over to France, who joined their Catholic compatriot, Spain. In response, the English, under the rule of Oliver Cromwell, this is during the Commonwealth period, ordered, among other things, the retaking of Acadia and the reestablishment of Nova Scotia. And so by July 1654, Charles and Jeanne are facing 500 Englishmen outside of their fort. Meanwhile, their garrison only consisted of 70 soldiers. 
they surrender this time without a fight and are taken prisoner to England. They linger there in obscurity for some two years. At some point, their prisoner status is rescinded, and then they're just people in England. In 1656, Latour supposedly asked Cromwell to return Acadia back to the French. However, this was denied, of course. Instead, Latour dug deep, and he reminded Cromwell that due to the efforts of his father some 36 years ago, he and his father are Nova Scotia baronets. And if Cromwell would just acknowledge their titles, he would return to Acadia and would be their agent in ruling over the French population in Nova Scotia, a.k.a. Acadia. And Cromwell agreed to that. So here, finally, we see Latour is a turncoat. And maybe all those years ago when his father uh, supposedly made these backroom deals without his consent, Maybe he was involved in those too. But when he returns to Acadia, now Nova Scotia, he's an English agent. And he controls Acadia with two other Englishmen, one named Thomas Temple and one named William Crane. But it is at this time that Latour uh, decided to stop playing the game. Think about how many times he had been up and down in this. And now approaching his twilight years, he decided to cash in and live a quiet life. And so he sold all of his interests and titles over Nova Scotia to his other two previously mentioned partners to live a nice quiet life in retirement. The historian Henry Sweester Burridge uh, says that Latour spent the closing years of his life in undisturbed enjoyment of his large estate. It's believed Latour outlives his wife. Charles Latour himself dies in 1666 as an English subject in Nova Scotia. But surprise, surprise, the year later, 1667, Acadia is officially given back to France in the Treaty of Breda, the handover being completed by 1670. At this point in time, just to bring our picture of Acadia up to date, Acadia only has about 400 French inhabitants. But many genealogists and historians have noted that the majority of Acadian and Cajun last names were already present in the colony. The founding families were already there, and they were having lots of babies. From this point on, it would be typical for the average Acadian man to have 50 or so grandchildren just from the traceable sons who had kids, not even accounting for their daughters and their children. The population was set to explode, and Latour would serve as an archetype for what the Acadian people would be as a whole, an overlap with the Mi'kmaq people that at times made them indistinguishable from one another, a preoccupation on local affairs, and an almost complete lack of of need to pledge loyalty to either the English or the French. These ingredients will all add up to quite a powder keg of a story that you'll hear in a future season of the Other States of America podcast. In our next episode, we'll be heading back west. I'm Eric Giannis. Thank you for listening. <laughs>